Are you thinking about starting your own cash practice? Maybe you've already started your own practice and you're starting to realize that there's a lot to learn when it comes to business. We can be great clinicians, but if we don't understand the business side of having our own practice, we're going to have a hard time being successful in business. Guys, I wrote a book for you and I took everything that I've learned over the last five years of running successful cash practice here in Atlanta. And I put it in this book and I gave you everything that you need to be able to start and scale that practice past yourself. That book is called Fuck Insurance. And if you don't like the title, the book is not for you. If you do like the title, it's the exact book that you need to be reading right now. I show you exactly how to start. I show you what's important when it comes to marketing, when it comes to sales, when it comes to operations, and what stage you're actually at in the business. You know, where you're at, what you need to focus on while you're there, and how to get to the next stage. I'm trying to set it up in a way where you can get some clarity in your business. And the book for now is 100% free. All you have to do is go to finsurancebook.com. That's finsurancebook.com and get your free copy of the book that I wrote specifically to help you be successful in business. The book is free. All you got to do is pay for it to get to your door so that I don't lose my shirt on giving everybody all these books and sending them around the world. And again, head to finsurancebook.com. Learn how to run a successful cash practice today. So here's the question. How do physical therapists like us who don't want to see 30 patients a day, who don't want to work home health and have real student loans create a career and life for ourselves that we've always dreamed about? This is the question and this podcast is the answer. My name is Danny Matei and welcome to the PT Entrepreneur Podcast. What's going on, guys? Doc Danny here with the PT Entrepreneur Podcast. And uh, today, I get a chance to uh, chat with my business partner, uh, Eve Gigi, as well as uh, get into his backstory, um, which I think is really interesting in terms of kind of his family, uh, his upbringing, his background in owning a cash or a uh, insurance-based practice and then transition to a cash practice and then all of the other entrepreneurial uh, ventures that he's been able to get into, which is it's quite, it's quite a few things, right? So um, first of all, let, let me start with this. So thanks for your time to, to begin with, but uh, let's, let's, let's start with the backstory of little Eve Gigi and how you guys, you know, got here. Cause it's a, a legitimate like immigration story with, with your family. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Um, so both of my parents are uh, born and raised in Switzerland. Like, um, you know, uh, we always joke, right? We did the 23 Me, and like, I am 100% Swiss, right? You're what, 0.1% Swiss or something? I think I'm 12, I'm 12%. Okay, that's, that's Does that count? Can I get like, like, if I go there, will people represent or recognize me and be like, okay, we accept you to some degree? No, I think you're like a dirty Italian, probably. <laughs> I'm the guy that snuck over the border. <laughs> you know, because I mean, it's so like Northern Italy and uh, uh, Switzerland, obviously, like super, super close, right? Like Italian is the uh, um, main languages of Switzerland. I mean, it's a small part, but like it's a. Yeah. But yeah, so um, the the short version of the story is that my mom, um, this is before um, they were married or even knew each other, wanted to get out of Switzerland, like. If you don't know a ton about Switzerland, most people don't. Most people um, think it's Sweden, which is obviously in Scandinavia, which is totally different. This is Switzerland, Central Europe, right? Alps, things like that. Clocks, chocolates. Um, Fondue. You know, what did you say? Fondue, man. That's like your, your jam, right? Swiss fondue. Yeah, we have it at least twice a year. Uh, amazing stuff. You have to come do it one time. Well. So um, it's, yeah, it's central. It's very socialistic, right? So like in a, a socialistic country, it's very difficult uh, to accumulate wealth there, right? It's very difficult to like, wherever you are, you know, you're, you have more than enough, but to actually like, you know, uh, build a business and accumulate wealth is very difficult. It's a very, very small percentage of people. And in Switzerland, most people, um, like it's one of the wealthiest countries. So everybody's doing really, really well, but it's difficult to kind of further yourself. So um, it's one of the first things my dad, my dad told me. So my mom left, just once. she lived in a small town. She left and pretty drastic move, right? Go all the way to uh, America, right? On a green card. And they actually ended up in New York, in Long Island, um, you know, small apartment, you know, uh, didn't have a car. I think they had to like um, ask my uh, godfather at the time for like $40 to buy a couch and a bed. 
um, and, and just that's where they were, right? And so my dad worked and my mom worked for the ports, right? And so they did logistics and paperwork for the ports. And uh, my dad followed my mom, right? And he was like, oh man, I need to, um, I need to follow where she's going. And that uh, relationship blossomed, right? And, um, you know, full transparency before they were even married. I'm, I'm coming along um, and they're like, we cannot raise a child in uh, Long Island in the city. And so they moved uh, to Charleston. And I was born here locally, uh, uh, never left. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm a first generation American, which a lot of people don't know. I speak German uh, as well. German was actually my first language even before I spoke English, which is kind of strange to think about. Well, it's also interesting to, you know, like when <clears throat> we look at, at uh, the U.S. and uh, there's so, there is so much opportunity for people that want to try to do something on their own, right? If we even look at bankruptcy law here is so much different than many other countries. And, and, you know, like your debts don't follow you around. Like you don't get put in jail if you can't pay, pay somebody back, uh, you know, for something. And, and if it's through your corporation, obviously student loans, I think are the only thing that, that, that really uh, transfers, which we can kind of talk of a whole different uh, conversation about that. But, you know, it's interesting to hear about other countries and you know, in some ways there's pros and cons to lots of different systems. It just depends on what you're trying to, to do. But uh, there's a stark difference between, the, you know, Switzerland and, uh, and the U S in terms of, uh, opportunities that, that people have. So, you know, with your dad in particular, as he, uh, or I guess both your parents as, as they left, um, you know, is that the avenue that they stayed in? Were they, uh, in, you know, import export kind of uh, port based, uh, you know, uh, work, uh, did they, you know, go and do their own thing? Did they take that chance on themselves? Like how did they end up, um, you know, utilizing that transition to another whole other country? Yeah. So, um, I mean, my, it, this company was called Panopina. Um, and, um, when I was born, like I said, my dad had the opportunity to start a very small office here in Charleston, South Carolina, like Charleston, when I was born was not what it is now. Right. Like, you know, we had, did not have that huge bridge. It was very small, like people moving here all the time. Um, so he had the opportunity to really grow that office. So he, he kind of stayed in the, uh, corporate world and I can get into why that also kind of drove my entrepreneurial spirit just kind of watching him what the corporate world was like but he really stayed there but he still did such a great job like he became one of the VPs he grew that office to I mean I don't know how many employees but like I remember visiting my dad and there was offices uh, upon offices there and even early on once he started doing well he was always again he, he was very grateful for the opportunity that he had and so he was um, you know trying to buy like land um, and always trying to use some of that disposable income again to, you know, something he didn't have an opportunity to do in Switzerland, um, which is try to like the idea of kind of accumulation wealth. He was very, very uh, intent on, you know, leaving me this giant nest egg, which at this point I'm like, you just need to travel and like, you're good. Like enjoy the money, which is a whole nother battle between me and him. Right. And, like I want him to buy a yellow Hummer. He says no. Right. But like, you know, he, he was always uh, saving a lot and like, you know, he's, he's very budgeted and I'm very thankful for that because you know, they're Swiss people are very regimented. It's like, mm. you know, like the profit first system it may not be exact, but I was doing something like that from the age of 15 where I was, um, you know, I always had to put a certain amount of money towards my car insurance. If I wanted a car, I always had to budget um, everything that he gave me on a, on a regular basis. So, you know, at the point when I was, I had my first credit card when I was 16, so he's like, you need to have credit because if you have credit, then you can, you know, you can buy a house. And I was able to buy a house um, with my dad, you know, when I was um, 20 or 19 to 20. Right. And we had people come in and pay essentially rent and that paid my mortgage. So I, when I was done with uh, college, um, like mid PT school, I already pretty much, you know, almost owned a house and had a bunch of equity. So, yeah, that's awesome. Well, it sounds like your, your family, uh, educated you on basic finance concepts, you know, and I think that that's rare. I don't see that that often. Um, you know, with, it didn't happen with my family. It doesn't happen. It didn't really happen with a lot of, you know, colleagues that, uh, that, that we know. And what happens is many of us end up just, um, just doing whatever we see our family do, right? Like my, my family, my family is, uh, they're prolific accumulators. They're super, super cheap. And the, and, but also you have to look at where they came from, right? So like they come from depression era people and, and immigrants as well. And they didn't have a lot of money as well as they didn't know if somebody was going to take it from them or if the, you know, the, the great depression was going to happen again. Uh, so you know, like their habits are based off of what they learned from their family. Right. So 
I think this idea of financial education with, with uh, young adults and kids in particular is a great like missing form of education that people just don't really get. Have you taken any of those uh, kind of like basic lessons around money and finance and utilization of it and uh, applied that with your kids at all at this point? Um, I mean, a little bit, right? So like we've definitely, me and Liam built some business plans because like, oh, I'm going to sell Pokemon cards. I'm going to make a bunch of money. I'm just like, who are these people and where are they going to get the money and what, you, you know what I mean? So, um, and then my daughter, if she wants to buy anything, she needs to earn a certain amount of money. And so we kind of talk about how many weeks that's going to take, how much you need to work for it. Right. So just like just small things, which I just think is so important to understand. I was so grateful for those lessons, right? Because, um, understanding that early on, I looked at some of the people around me who, who weren't necessarily doing anything on purpose, but you could tell they just didn't understand the relationship kind of between money and credit and things like that. Right. It's like when you yeah. get to college, you don't understand what alcohol is like and you drink 15 beers, like that's a really bad place to be in. Like I was able to drink at an early age. So I knew it was like, man, two or three beers. I'm probably good at this age. Like I don't need to go crazy. Although yeah. I'm a little, you well, know, it's like, understand that stuff. They're expensive. It's expensive too, man. Like, you know, you, you just set up a tab at the bar and next thing you know, it's like hundred dollars later and you forgot who you bought a drink for. And <laughs> as a college kid, that's, you know, that's a lot of money. And, you know, so I, I think that uh, those lessons taught early are huge gift, uh, you know, that most people don't get. And, and sadly, a lot of it is because most people in general just have no basic financial education at all. Right. So how are you going to teach somebody that you don't, something you don't know that you actively struggle with yourself constantly. And I, and more than anything, I tend to see people that uh, tend to gravitate towards wanting to learn about money typically comes from a place of never having any money uh, from their family and, and just being fed up with that and, and trying to understand you know, how that, how that works, uh, that, that oftentimes become very disciplined in how they handle it themselves. Um, one resource that, that I've used with, uh, with Jack so far is I read him the book, the richest man in Babylon, which is like a, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's not a, a book they can read to themselves, right? He's, he's eight, but, uh, uh, it's super simple concepts, like a parable, you know, kind of, kind of book. So something like that, I think, uh, can, can help quite a bit, but yeah, I get the same thing. Like he told me, uh, I told him he couldn't have something and he was like, well, when I get to college, I'm going to have a credit card. I'm going to buy whatever I want. And I was like, you realize you have to pay that back. Right. And then I went through and actually drew out what happens with a credit card and how he ends up having to pay it back. And he was like, Oh, I don't want a credit card <laughs> after that. Please yeah. don't understand. But, uh, I do think it's a, it's an important concept. So for you, so you get out of school, you go to MUSC for, for PT school. And then from there you start your PT career. Right. So, um, I know you were a partner in a, in a in-network practice. Did you start there at that same location or did you bounce around a couple other ones before you ended up at this location where you end up becoming a partner? Yeah. I mean, uh, let's take it back just a little bit. So I had a special needs little sister and I wanted to, I was sure I was going to be a pediatric physical therapist and I was going to own my own practice in the pediatric physical therapy world. Like I always had the I dream and idea of, of owning my own practice. So, um, I got my first job in a school system and um, I had a second job, really three jobs. I had a second job after the school system where I would go do outpatient pediatric. I just wanted as much experience as possible. And uh, you know, the, in the school system world, you, don't really, you, know, you work from seven to three. And I was like, what am I gonna do from three to nine o'clock? I don't have kids on anything. So I, was like, I just got a second job. Yeah. Um, and I worked outpatient uh, orthopedics in the summers. And a long story short, like three years of pediatric physical therapy, I kind of got a little burnt out and I also didn't see the financial opportunities in that world, unfortunately. I, I, they definitely exist, right? But um, it just wasn't where I was led. And so I left that and luckily I had that relationship with that outpatient physical therapy office and had a relationship there. And my friend started their first satellite clinic and um, I guess they already saw the entrepreneurial spirit in me. So we had the agreement that I would work one year at this outpatient facility with in mind that we would slowly, you know, within that year, you know, have their second office that I'd be able to, to do their second office and kind of looking back, it's kind of crazy. Like I didn't have any like orthopedic really experience, right? Like, I mean, I worked out a little bit myself, but I was purely in pediatrics, but those skills, uh, believe it or not transferred over pretty well. So I was there, uh, for a solid year, um, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less, give or take. And then we opened from zero uh, office in a gym, believe it or not, insurance space office in a gym that was, that was just me. Um, and 
that experience, I still think I'm very much a hands-on experience. We've talked about this. Like I throw myself in, I make mistakes and I learn. Uh, I'm so grateful for that experience because it was just me and one office manager. I had the opportunity to do it relatively no risk because I still had a salary. Um, but I was able to grow that office right to where we had multiple therapists, multiple administrative people, you know, close to a million dollars of gross revenue, you know what I mean? And we know those profit margins, it's not an equal lot of money, guys, like it's not, you know, and uh, did that in a four year period and learned an insane amount of lessons about how to manage people, how to manage finances. That's probably where I learned a lot of the business P&L stuff and things like that. You know, I, I got a chance to spend very little time. It was only a couple of days with uh, pediatric uh, physical therapists out of, it was actually a uh, it was out of a neuro rehab place. It's the. I, it's funny. I talk to other people. You know, other people that are going through PT school or have gone to PT school. And I think my experience is very different because you know in the army. Uh, that's just not a job that you have. Like whether you want to do it or not. Like they just outsource that. Um, but they just want you to get like some exposure to it. So I spent two weeks at a neuro rehab facility, learning everything about neuro. That was it. And then I spent 14 months at an outpatient ortho clinic while I was still in school so that when we got out, we we're ready to go in case, you know, we need, were deploying quickly after that. And I spent two days there. And in those couple of days, I was exhausted, first of all, mentally. Um, and, and what I look back, like thinking at, it looks like play, which I thought was actually like really interesting in terms of how they, how they do a lot of that. But what I look back, uh, back on and think about that probably benefit you in that realm so much is think about how hard it is to communicate with the population that you work with, you know, and then be able to communicate what's going on to the parent. Cause what it really looks like is you're bouncing them on a ball. You know what I mean? And like, so the communication side, like, did you take, you know, uh, skills? I'm sure that, that there's some that apply from that realm to what you do now with not just, uh, you know, your business, but I mean, we're, we're coaching at this point close to 90 businesses actively, uh, that ability to communicate and, and effectively get your message across to, to people. Did you learn a lot while you're in that, you know, pediatric facility? Oh, I mean, a hundred percent. Right. So like, you know, when you get back to it, you're right. When you look at it, it looks like we're playing, right. It looks like, you know, I'm throwing a ball back and forth with a kid and it's like, well, what is this for? Right. And so the ability, I think a, to think outside the box and create something that is not only looks like play and feels like play to the child, but also, has a rehab benefit and a functional skill kind of involved. That's difficult. That's the mentally exhausting part. Like, sure, you could just play, but like that wouldn't be it. And then, right, you've got to do that. Then you have to successfully communicate to the child these specific, uh, I mean, I always called it tricking. It sounds bad, but you got to kind of trick them into, into rehabbing themselves, yeah. right? And, then, um, and the third part, and I still, this is what was the most exhausting, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, was explaining it to the parents, really getting them to understand what I was doing, why I was doing it, and then how to effectively do it at home. Because you really only see these kids maybe once or twice a week, right? Like, you know, the, the, and the progress is really, really slow. If I made progress in six months, I was probably on high end with some of these kids. With right? So it took me a long uh, time to really um, figure out how to communicate that stuff effectively. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it a, cool, it's a cool profession. Very so for, for, for you, like that transition into in-network practice. So, I mean, when did you realize this dude, insurance isn't the route that I want to, you know, go. I don't necessarily want to, uh, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I was driven out of my current situation really by the, the leader within the company, right? So the leader within the company was someone who had a management style and that was completely different than mine. Um, it was very much more like a dictatorship than it was a team, right? And so um, I got to the point where I felt I was spending all my time and energy protecting my employees from the leader or just constantly trying to figure out again how to justify what I was doing kind of on a regular basis or trying to like twist things like walking on eggshells is just not something I'm um, interested in. And, and the, the second layer of that was I just noticed that I was looking around in the clinic every single day and the patients that were in there and the, and the PTs, like we had a good time and we enjoyed it, but I really didn't figure, really didn't feel like we were moving the needle forward. Like I wasn't really, I may have get these people back to like walking, but like, 
they typically wouldn't leave with these kind of skills and uh, um, education to actually help them be better in life. Like we could never do that. And I, that was such a big passion of mine. In the pediatric world, that's basically all you're doing. You're just trying to, you know, I'm just trying to get this kid to walk so they can just live a better life. And we, were, we weren't spending time doing that. We we're spending time either just like treating pain or just like getting somebody to, to you know, post knee replacement, bend their knees so they go back and to the exact same lifestyle they were doing. And that gets really frustrating. Like that's why one of the reasons I think burnout kind of happens because yeah. I didn't feel impactful anymore. Like, and that was such, that's why I got a profession. I wanted to impact people in a big way. And I didn't feel like that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that happens is, you know, and this, not to say that this doesn't happen in, in a cash practice, but the decisions of how many visits I'm gonna, I, am I going to see this person? You know, what is, what is the verification on these visits? Uh, if it's a work comp person, does it really matter if they want to get better or not? Like they're kind of, they've got this two-year-old ankle sprain. It's just a visit, you know, it's volume. Um, I, that, that's, that, that is something that I noticed. That I, I, I spent a year in an in a, um, outpatient, you know, in-network practice while I was in school. That was part of our program. And uh, that's one thing that I started to get like really frustrated with as well. It's like, all right, cool. I think I'm going to see this person like six times or trying to get back to running or whatever. And they'd be like, well, they're, they're, insurance is they're good for like 20 visits so what else could you do with them in 20 visits you know and i was like that's a lot i don't know uh <laughs> you know and like so we had to be like super creative with it but it wasn't really based off of what i thought they needed in their time efficiency right like it was based off of what was necessary to maintain certain volume in a practice right so i get the business side of it but i always felt like it was sort of skewed in terms of what i felt somebody needed and what i was being told that they needed to do you know, and for the, for the, the business to be viable and profitable and continue to grow. So, you know, I know for, for you, part of that also is like the documentation side and like all the logistics and, and, and all that. And I think so many of our peers kind of get burned out on that. And, you know, at running a practice like that, I never did. What would you say the difference is in terms of, you know, your workload on the things that you don't like doing versus what you do enjoy doing in terms of, you know, being in a, in their practice versus cash practice? Like what's the difference there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it also depends on, on who you are and what you enjoy doing, right? And so, sure. you know, I probably spent 70% of the time treating, let's call it 20% of the time uh, doing notes and stuff like that, and then 10% of the time kind of managing, right? And so now I realize that, you know, if the position that I was in now and the position I am in now, I probably need to flip that. I need 70% of my time kind of managing, maybe 20% of my time doing kind of notes and administrative stuff and 10% of my time really treating to effectively run my, uh, run my business. Right. And so that, that model wasn't really set up for that though. Right. Like there's no, I couldn't, I couldn't even do that in that model. Like it wouldn't have been able to sustain it unless I had maybe, you know, four or five clinics, maybe then it, it could sustain my, um, kind of salary. Right. And I enjoyed all the other stuff and I wanted to do more of that, but it was just, um, it's not set up that way. And then yes, like there was so much time and energy spent on administrative things like calling insurance companies, uh, figuring out what the new PQRS system was, right? Just stuff that, that again, I felt like wasn't moving needle forward and it was just becoming harder and harder every single year, as well as reimbursements were becoming more difficult and we were having more AR kind of accounts receivable. There was so much money that we weren't even getting, yeah. even doing everything right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is like, we, you sure alluded to this. So, okay. You're, you're in a network practice that's gross revenue is at about a million dollars. Right. And so people think, Oh shit, a million dollars, is a lot of money, but it, it totally is. Like if you, if we saw a million dollars sitting on a table, like it would look like an insane amount of money in cash. Right. But the, the reality is if we look at how much of that is accounts receivable, how much of that is, you know, expenses uh, associated with even having to try to reclaim that insurance overhead of the facility, overhead of the, the staff, you know, all the things that go into that taxes for having those employees, you know, and, 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 you know, we see it from the cash side where oftentimes gross revenue is not going to be nearly as high. So the total amount that is, that is made, but, there's way less expenses. So when we look at the net, it's, it's interesting how it can end up being equivalent to a practice that is, you know, maybe even half the size can have just as much net profitability in terms of what you bring home. So, you know, 
Can you talk to that for a second in terms of like the difference that you see between those two models and, and just from a financial side, the efficiency between the two? Oh, I'd love to, right? That was the biggest stark contrast once I did uh, kind of performance-based cash services to what it was before. That's the, what I talk about the most, right? Especially during the, when I was doing the startup stuff, that's what I was the biggest highlight, right? So like, you know, I think everyone listen to this. If you could think about it, would you rather, you know, have a million dollar company that, and you only uh, get a hundred thousand dollars of that salary profit on a hundred thousand dollars. That's where you get in. Would you rather do that? Or would you rather, you know, bill out, you know, or bill out, like perform $200,000 gross revenue and then make a hundred thousand dollars. Which one would you rather do? Like, I'm going to tell you right now, being on, on both sides of the coin, you guaranteed more than likely, unless it's a vanity number, some people it's a vanity number, but it's going to be a lot less work, a lot less headache, much better quality of life to be the 200 to 100, like just hundred percent. Like, you know, when you're that big of a business, you're managing so many people, there's so many moving parts. Um, it's very difficult. It's, it would be a full-time job just to kind of manage that. Right. And, and that's, those are exactly, I mean, it's not that simple, right. But like, it's pretty much that much of a stark contrast as to where it was in the insurance space world and where it is in the cash world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, the revenue is one thing, right. And, and you have to understand, I think that, uh, I was like talking about like what race are people running, right. Oftentimes in network practice, uh, the, the race they're running is to accumulate multiple practices, package those up, sell to a bigger company or private equity, right? At a X multiple of their, of their revenue. So they're basically playing the game of, uh, grow lower, lower margins, and then sell for a big payday one day, if that happens. Right. So that's sort of like a, it's almost like a startup company. Yeah. And I didn't really realize this until I spent some time around people that are doing startups. And I was like, you guys don't care about pro like paying yourself. You don't care about profitability. And they're like, not at all. It's all about growth and about finding somebody big to buy us and make, make, make a bunch of money on the exit and then do it all over again. So it's kind of a crazy model in comparison to what we've decided to do, which is establish a business that actually has like cash flow in it that pays you a salary and is profitable. Um, and that doesn't have a bunch of moving parts, but is not nearly as likely to be able to like accumulate multiple locations and sell to a big private equity company as if you, you know, took these big insurance contracts um, that are a little bit more volume scalable, right? So, you know, the, the difference being is what do you want your life to look like and who do you want to work with? And I think that's where we have to look at what's the inherent value, not necessarily on paper, even though we can make a strong statement that what you keep is going to be just as much as a, a bigger in-network practice. Uh, but what's the value to you to work with the people that give you energy, work with them in a way that you enjoy working with them and you feel like you can use your skill set to its uh, capacity, as well as be able to bring other people into that setting so they can avoid, you know, seeing so many people, you know, per day and not being able to use your skill set and getting really uh, frustrated. Like what's the inherent value of that, uh, you know, in terms of quality of life versus just a, a huge pay, potential payday one day that may or, you know, may not ever happen. Right. So, you know, I, I know, I'm sure, you know, you have PTs that, you know, that you have in the company that have seen the other side of that too. And, and uh, I don't even know how to put a value on that. You know, like I, I don't know how to equate a dollar figure to working with people that you just love working with. Yeah. I, I don't think you can even put a, a, a value value on it. It's basically priceless, right? Like two things. One is, yeah, like you said, working with the people that you want to work with and being able to uh, have a treatment style, so to speak, where you have almost complete autonomy and flexibility. Like, you know, I, I still, um, you know, we have a lot of people in our group that we're um, coaching that are hiring. Right. And I still, I tell this to everybody. It's like, it's like working, I think, right. It's like working for what people, I don't know what it's like to work for Google, but I picture, you know what I mean? What people, most people's heads, like they're just playing foosball or hanging out. Like that's the kind of flexibility that we have. Right? right. So like on Monday we shut the clinic down. Um, and you know, we've definitely played spike ball for an hour, right? Like that would not happen in right. insurance. It would not happen. Like it's just a different, uh, culture around that. And I truly think that most new grads uh, and people coming up value or understand the value of this kind of time freedom and autonomy and flexibility that they right. want. And that's why, you know, so many more people are moving to this performance-based setting because they value that stuff. Cause sure, there's a lot of money involved. It's a rat race that to some people that's fun. That's just not fun to me. I'd rather like leave at three o'clock, you know, and go work out or, or say, see five patients a day, um, then see, you know, 20 patients a day. 
Yeah. And, and honestly, if we, I mean, if we're, if we're just talking purely math, right? Like you, you brought up this idea of, you know, would you rather uh, generate $200,000 and pay yourself a hundred or generate a million and pay, pay yourself a uh, hundred um, on paper? That's a pretty easy decision, right? Like that's pretty straightforward. There's just so many less, uh, fewer variables that can go wrong as well, because, you know, when you're, when your margins are that thin, you know, it's like, I, I heard, I've heard people kind of describe owning a business like, being hunted by an invisible wolf all the time because like if you're not constantly doing the right things eventually your burn rate of your overhead is going to eat up your capital and then you're going to have no money left and then you're going to be out of business right so uh if you if you have this high overhead it's much more stressful than if it's uh you know lower lower overhead model but you know we have people that we work with these are real numbers like you know that are making $200,000 by themselves with you know 15% overhead. So meaning they're paying themselves basically, you know, 150 to $170,000 uh, between salary and, and profit before taxes all by themselves. Like not, you know, not in another staff clinician, maybe they have a part-time virtual assistant. So when we look at the money side of it, it's not even a question of, can you do that? Now that's a hundred percent active income. I think this is like really important concept for people to understand is like, that's you by yourself. You've created a job for yourself. That's not a job for somebody else. It's not you're really hard. a business. Yeah. Right? You're going, you're, I mean, if you're doing that, you are working a lot. You're not doing a 40 hour work week, right? No, like, you're, you're hustling. Doing... Yeah. You're busting your ass. And you know, and for some people, that's where they want to be. They like that and they kind of want to stay there. That's their lifestyle. They want to, you know, lead and, and, uh, but most people what we tend to see, and this is, you know, for, for us, like the, the model that seems to be a, a sweet spot is kind of in this, this range of, you know, two providers and then an owner that's seeing may, let's call it like a half schedule with something like that. Like uh, a clinic that's at five to $600,000 in revenue is very possible based on your price point. And, you know, again, like you can basically take home twice as much as a, a very high, uh, high volume clinic because it's so much more profitable and you're not necessarily doing all the work yourself, which is, you know, one of the reasons why you go into business for yourself. So, you know, when you start looking at these business models of what's the right decision for you, there's all these books out there about how to start a clinic. Like I have a book that I wrote on, on, you know, this type of a model, but it's like getting clear on what that looks like. And then the inherent problems you have to deal with. I think that helps make the decision, uh, you know, much better because, like if you had the opportunity, if you're like, Hey, I want you to come into this company. I think we have a chance to like scale 10 locations and then sell to, you know, whatever big company in, in, uh, in the next six years, would you take it? No way. No chance. <laughs> no chance. You know, the, I mean, the, I just, the, the headache that'd be involved in the, in the sleepless nights, um, you know, we're on the other side of the coin. Right. And so, you know, I think you're kind of trading one for the other, like, you know, again, I, let's, I keep, I'm kind of obsessing on how to simplify things, right? And then go more complex as needed. But like in a simple way, the insurance-based practice may be a lot easier to start and get initial traction with, but like it's going to be a lot more work on the back end to eventually like sell and exit, right? Where a cash practice is going to be much harder to start and much harder to get that initial traction, right? Like, you know, it just the marketing involved and the branding, you just have to spend more, so much more time and energy in the front. But on the back end, kind of where, where me, you know, me and you are now, it's very difficult. Like, you know, it's very difficult for our business probably to fall apart completely. Like something catastrophic has to happen, right? Like I definitely have seen all of our cash practices bounce back in a completely different way than what I've heard, mm. right? And speak to it directly but what i've heard what some of the insurance practices are going through like they're back to where they were before like a month ago which is still which i think is 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 a huge testament to kind of what's going on and what the future looks like well yeah i mean like it's interesting you know i had a follow-up call with one of the guys in our mastermind uh that uh so we we track their their trailing 12 right so how much revenue have you had over the last 12 months and the last time we did it was in um, October. So it was basically six months ago, or I guess it would be nine months ago uh, when the last time that we, we pulled it uh, was, but his revenue was up 40% over his trailing 12. Uh, and it includes a couple of months and he's in the Northwest or Northeast, a couple of months where he basically had like 50% uh, revenue coming in in comparison to a normal month, yet he's still up 40% year over year in terms of looking at his trailing 12 from nine months ago. So uh, it's a massive difference. And the reason why, and this is what I'm seeing in this, because this is a, this is a crazy ass time. Like, let's be honest. This is wild. We're living in a sci-fi novel. And, you know, 
because of the business that we have, it's going to be directly affected by in-person contact. Now, if you're, if, if you are looking at this in terms of are people's, are, are, is back pain going to go away? No, right? Are people still going to need help with injuries that they have? For sure. And if you are a, a consumer and you see, I can go to this location over here where they have to have multiple people in at one time, you know, and, and you want to be in an area where you're going to get help, but you're going to have to be around a lot more people. Or over here, you have a model where you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you can control variables much differently. Um, you know, which one are people going to choose? And what we're seeing is, Many people are moving towards that model, which is what we thought months ago. We we're like, this could be really good for the type of practices that we have once we get by the past initial shock of like, you know, hey, this isn't going away in two weeks. And what we're seeing is, yes, exactly. Like we're seeing our practices that we work with that are actually accelerating in terms of their monthly revenue uh, in comparison to peers that are heavily insurance uh, contract based because they, they live and die off of volume, high volume. And a lot of those people also want nothing to do with going to, you know, a clinic because maybe they're higher risk. So for us, it's a very unique place to, to be right now. And not necessarily that we knew that was going to happen. We just thought that's the right way to work with people. Just turns out that now it's an even better way to work with people because it limits contact points. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's, that's, that's like simple. You look at one, you look at the other, a lot of people are going to grab, or more people are probably going to gravitate towards that. We'll see over the next like six months to a year because we understand this isn't going away. But I think I, I agree with you. I think things are only going to continue to move in that direction. And it, it kind of brings something else up that I think is other stark contrast between like uh, insurance and cash is like with the insurance-based model, you've given up a ton of control, right? Like uh, what is like the number one thing that we do to people to help them when they initially come into mastermind, right? Like we help them raise their prices. You can never, literally never, it's yeah. probably the opposite. You can never do that, right? And, and it, it, it kind of sh shows you, um, you know, when you're in a performance-based practice, yes, it's hard, but like, you know, you can market differently, you can brand differently. When some of like this happens, you're much more nimble and agile, there's less people involved. Like if there's ever a time where like being low overhead and being a little more nimble is beneficial, it's right now, right? Yeah. Like even less chance of your employees getting sick because you just have a less number of them, right? Or just less people in your office. Like there's, there's, there's just so many advantages that are being highlighted at this, you know, uncertain time. Well, you bring up a good point too, because, you know, the, the way that we met was, you know, you're the first person that I uh, ever did in-person business consulting with. And, uh, uh, and, and I've told the story before. I mean, a lot of it is just sort of like people would reach out and ask to come and spend the day with me. And then, I would have to cancel like patient time so that I could answer questions for them. And it would cost me money and it was frustrating because I would have to like change my intellectual hat over to like answering a business question versus just doing PT stuff. And uh, I kind of just was trying to, to deter people. And uh, so I would put like a dollar amount on it. I think it was like 500 bucks or something like that. And uh, you said yes. And I was like, I had an oh shit moment where I was like, oh crap, I have to like do this. Someone's coming here. And uh, what was interesting was, you know, that was as you were starting up your practice and you got a chance to kind of see how, how I was running things, which I didn't know if it was the right way or the wrong way. It's just sort of what I was doing. But from then until now, you know, you went from starting your practice to growing it to multiple providers in a short period of time, setting up a licensing model, starting a physical product, having another digital business, and then coming on as a partner within PT Biz, primarily managing and bringing on people as, as the head coach, essentially, for how we work with people, in particular with the mastermind how like that transition from essentially player to coach, which is kind of where you are now, right? Like, what do you feel like the, the most important things you learned that you apply currently, you know, with, with being in business in multiple situations, but when you're working with somebody to help them define what their next logical step is. And I think that's when I, when I talk to people about onboarding with you, I'm like, look, you're going to, Eve's going to onboard you. He's really good at getting you to work on the right things. So taking a shit off your plate. We don't want you to do too much of the wrong stuff. We want you to just focus on the right thing. So, we're going to actually have you do less, but less of you know, less things, but more of the right things. So how do you develop that skill set to really help, you know, distill that down, clearly help people understand what they should be working on? Because I think that's so, that's what's so hard about a business is there's so much stuff and there's so much information coming at you. And so-and-so says, we well, got to do this Facebook ad. And so-and-so says, you got to have this Google, you know, search engine optimization. And this person's saying, well, you got to do, you know, this type of workshop. And then this person's like, well, you got to do this sales system. And like, there's so much crap. So like, how do you help them distill that down? 
That's a, um, as I continue to do more and more, uh, I'm trying to create more of a, a framework for this stuff. And um, it's funny, I've just been thinking about this quite a bit. And I, first of all, I think the skill set of me doing more one-on-one -on -one cash-based physical therapy and really digging into people's lives and understanding what makes them tick. And like, you know, just more of that has, has helped me be a better coach to, to other humans. Like getting pe people to motivate themselves to work on the things that they know that they should be doing, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's business is, 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 is pretty similar. And I would say there's two concepts that are, I think, the most important. I would say number one, and everybody's heard of like starts with why kind of thing. I say just like and, um, aligning their passion and their purpose. Like if those two things, I realized when those two things were aligned, something they really like to do and they kind of aligned uh, their purpose with it, whether it's their job or what they're kind of achieving next. If I can closely align those two things directly, they kill it, right? Like we know that the people that are implementing and doing stuff do the best, you know, mm. not only physically, but also, you know, we've seen it in our mastermind members. Like those people are just like, they're excited to get up every day. They love the patients they're treating. They're in a setting that they love. Like they just kill it. So if I can align those two things directly, it's huge. That's probably like easily step number one. And then the second part, and I think this is probably the most challenging, is taking a step away from what you're doing and figuring out what's the one thing, right? This is kind of from Jared. What's, what's the one thing that I can do that can have the most impact? And if you're constantly asking yourself that question, right? Constantly for every decision, you get used to that. The impact that you can have is just much greater, right? If I can go do 20 things or I can do one thing, if I do this one thing and it impacts all those 20 things, all of a sudden those 20 things don't even matter anymore. And if that's what you're doing consistently, and that's what I'm constantly trying to distill in somebody's business, what is the one thing that's going to have the biggest impact? And if they're doing that on a regular basis, oh man, like <clears throat> it's huge. What would you say, you know, with, I don't know how I many you, I don't know. I don't know how many one-on-one -on -one calls you've done at this point, but it's a lot, hundreds, right? So uh, of those, have you noticed a pattern in terms of uh, kind of biggest mistakes, flaws that you see or mental or, or skill set hangups people have that lead them to kind of get stuck and not make the progress that, you know, we see so many other people uh, on paper, like we look at these two people, we see one is just sort of skyrockets, the other one uh, sort of seems to plateau. But have you noticed there, you know, what sort of similarities you found with people that kind of get stuck and things that, that they just ask, absolutely need to be working on that they maybe don't think is the problem? Absolutely. And it's, it's going to be definitely more of a intangible. Um, and we, we talked about this other, uh, the other day, kind of offline, like the idea of mindset. And like, if you distill it to one word, it's confidence, mm. like the confidence in typically you have confidence in your clinical skills, but in the confidence that you can, you know, <clears throat> sales and marketing is kind of negative words. So like the, the, sometimes what I use that you can communicate effectively. I think that is the one skill, the people that can communicate effectively what they're doing and why this person needs to do something. Again, they're the ones that crush it. Like the communication skills. I don't think we really realize. I always heard, you know, people like Jocko talk about like, man, I just, I took English because I wanted to learn how to just communicate effectively. I'm like, why? Like we just talk, right? But like, no, like using a simple word and changing the way you say something, like something very simple that I just learned the other day. Like when you use the word imagine, like imagine yourself in a place where you can play tennis without pain again. Like that simple twist as opposed to saying like, hey, you know, uh, you should play tennis again without any pain. That would be great, right? Like just that simple change in words are just so important. And the people that focus on improving those skills, again, they're the ones that have, uh, that, that just kill it. Like that is like, I think the biggest probably linchpin for us because we just don't get any education on that stuff right we were so emphasized on our clinical skills diagnostic skills you know what's this uh, bone and what's this you know modality yeah. do well and also i think that it comes not just down to with patients as 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 well right with uh uh local marketing um development of you know referral partners and relationships in the community uh, as well as it, you know, and some people hate that, right? Like we've worked with people that literally have so much anxiety over speaking with other people that they just don't do it. So they just kind of shut down and they have to find other ways. But even if you go the route of communicating, you know, virtually, that's still 
you still have to communicate. It's just in a somewhat different context, right? So whether it's an email or a blog post or whatever you're doing, you still have to understand what drives people to make change, what uh, is ethically persuasive, I guess is a good way to put it. And, and you're right. Like, I think the word imagine is probably the most powerful word in the English language in terms of like positioning something that you would want somebody to move towards. Like it's such a strong word because it instantly makes them in their mind, start creating a movie for themselves of like what that looks like. And we can't see it, right? Because it's happening like somewhat subconsciously for them, but we're helping set the stage for that. Um, and, and we're, we're sort of planting that seed so that as we go down the road with them and things get hard and they have to do more work, uh, they understand why they're, why they're doing it. Right. So I think communi communication is huge. And, and this, this confidence thing is, it's, it's such a interesting, uh, paradigm, right? Like, because there's some people that we work with that are arrogant that we have to like tone it down. We're like, look, you don't know everything. You can't talk to people this way because you're off putting to them. And that's a hard thing to tell somebody. And on the flip side, you have people that are you're just like, why are you, why do you think you're not like better at this? Why do you think more people aren't going to come and see you? Like you're awesome. And they just don't see it. Right. So finding that middle ground, it's just so hard. And, and uh, I don't know if, if people are lacking confidence and so plenty of people that we work with like that, what have you found are some simple things that they can start to like implement to really help with gaining that, you know, in terms of their, their business, uh, you know, credibility, cl clinical skill set, all that, that seems to be like mentally blocking and holding them back. Yeah, I would say that there's three things um, people can do, and it seems like the different learning styles, right? So like for me, it was like trial by fire, right? Like just go out and just have those conversations yeah. and get better at those conversations. The more you're going to do it, the, the better you're going to get, right? So let's just call that like, you know, stool number one, right? The leg of the stool. There's three legs. The second one is to just go find education and mentorship in that arena, right? Like both of us definitely know that the more uh, time and energy we spend on educating ourselves on skill sets that we don't have, the, the almost immediate return on investment are. Not only because it's, it's useful stuff, but I think the mindset shift of I'm spending money on bettering myself is a mind mindset shift that like just happens when you start doing it, right? Like it, it's definitely huge, right? And I would say, um, I lost the third one. What was the third one? Your, your stool's all over. What happened to my stool? Yeah, no, unbelievable. <laughs> like I, get, I, get all these tangents. I get so excited, right? And so, um, yeah, so the mentorship, the, the, the getting education, doing it, I don't remember the third one. It'll come to me later. That always, yeah. Dang it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I agree with you, like for the, the two that you, that you mentioned, um, you know, confidence, confidence comes from putting yourself in situations. And in particular, if you can practice those things, like one of the things that we're really big on is like role-playing uh, with scenarios of different things that we know people are going to be somewhat uncomfortable with. We did this with our front desk staff quite a bit um, because, you know, it's, it's sort of like, um, just any sport, right? You're going to do drilling, you're going to do deliberate practice, you're going to put yourself in situations that you're going to then have to do during a game where it actually counts. And the more you do that, the less you, you know, the more conditioned you become to that, 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 uh, that stimulus, I guess, or deconditioned you become to that stimulus to where it's not necessarily going to affect you nearly as much. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and on the, what's that? That's it. It's your, it's your, that's the one that you taught me and I don't do it as much as why I forget, but it's practice. Yeah. People don't do like you are phenomenal at that. Like you will spend hours in front of a mirror, right? Practicing your pitch and honing your sales skills just by yourself with others. Right. And like, I don't see anybody doing that. Right. Like you're the rarity and like, that's what makes you so good at what you are. Sorry. That was, that yeah. was it. I knew well, it. you know, I, a lot of that, but that comes from sport, right? Your background is in soccer. My background is, primarily in like other ball sports and play soccer, but lots of other things. And like, but to get good at things, you have to, you have to practice. You have to, you can't just like inherently, but some people maybe are naturally going to be good at something, but if they really want to be really good, they have to, they have to practice. And, and uh, I had a lot of problems with public speaking. So I had to actually, um, I, I, like if I had to give a presentation in school, I wouldn't, I had to memorize everything. I memorized word for word. And I didn't even realize I had a problem because I didn't have to do much of it whenever I was in undergrad until I, you know, I got to my, uh, and I got to Baylor and I had to give like a evidence-based review on, I think it was on Skiffy or something like that. And like, I, I was shaking so bad that I had to like put a piece of paper down that I had in my hand because it was making so much noise. And it's funny when people are just like, oh, you have no problem speaking in public. It's like, no, I still get super nervous every time that I do it. I just have forced myself to become better at it. And you know, that comes from practice. So when, yeah, when I would teach for a mobility wad, 
I literally like memorized two days worth of information so that I knew exactly what I was going to learn as well as any th- questions somebody would ask me. So I would feel comfortable with it. I would think about what logical question would somebody ask me so that, you know, I, I would have an answer for that. And if anybody asked me a question that I didn't think about, I would write it down and I would come up with my rebuttal to that. So like it's objection handling, it's sales, like it's no different. So that seems a bit extreme, but that was my situation. Cause I had a lot of um, I had a lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety about that, and a lot of imposter syndrome of like, why am I flying around the country teaching this stuff? I'm not Kelly Starrett. Like, I don't, I didn't write the book on this, like all of that. And so many of us go through that. This is just in the arena of business, right? So I think that, you know, if you want to gain that confidence, you gain confidence through repetition and practice. And that leads to you, you being uh, also very confident in your skill set that, that many of us have, right? Like we are really good clinicians. We want to help people. But the variable that's going to allow you to do that or not do that is how well can you get people in the office? How well can you get them to communicate, you know, to what they want and you solve that problem for them and then get more people like that in to be able to grow, uh, grow your business. So, you know, it's tough though. It is, it is the number one thing that I think that we see and you can almost, I can almost tell when I talk to somebody I'm like, man, this person's going to kill it. They just got the right mindset. And then these other people, I'm like, damn, we have a lot of work to do and almost always I see a trend of either they accelerate or they, they flatten out. And the ones that can get past that, that don't have that inherent self-confidence, wherever it comes from, they actually tend to be the best business owners from what I see because they have to work through it and they have to be able to teach those lessons to the people that they, uh, that they hire. So in a lot of ways, it's a superpower for you if you can get past that. It's just the getting past it part is where most people quit because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, the idea of... <clears throat> um, getting kind of better each day too, right? Like that's the kind of second layer to it, right? Like you're constantly wanting more and kind of kind of constantly like, I've got to get better at this. So I'm going to uh, tweak it a little bit and go for right. And so um, that would say that was the kind of last uh, piece to the linchpin for people is just like, you've got to have that desire to constantly be better, right? We definitely see some of those people are like, I'm cool. I'm complacent. I'm good where I am. And that's fine. I think that's okay with that. But like that just idea, like we're constantly tweaking, constantly trying to improve things. Like it's almost a problem in some ways, right? We've got to, I have legitimate uh, concerns and uh, stop gaps to stop myself from doing that. Whether it's other human beings who tell me to stop like my wife or maybe some of my, uh, like Dane, who's the, who's kind of running made to move now, right? Like legitimate, like, all right, you've got to slow down, right? And so that's another kind of double-edged sword. I think. Dude, I hear you, man. I guess it's such a, it's such a interesting paradigm shift because, you know, when you start to realize that like you have all these things you need to work on and the, the biggest limitation long-term is just going to be yourself, right? So like self-doubt, lack of skills, you know, inability to communicate with other people effectively. These are, these are self uh, you know, problems that we have to address that, that if you don't and you, you build that to that next person that you bring into your ecosystem within your business, or really you can put this in context of anything, just life in general. But if you, if you just are like, you know, you realize there's a problem and you don't address it, you're not willing to address it. It doesn't go away. You can't just like hide from it. It just starts to become out more and more in different situations. Eventually you're forced to address it. Both of us have done, gone this route and, and we do. The challenge is, it's very easy to continue to try to go down that path because you see progress after and you, you get used to the discomfort that you put yourself in of constantly challenging yourself and making progress and getting better. And what's hard in some, some cases is the fact that not everybody wants to do that. Actually, in fact, very few people do. And if you hold other people to the standard you hold yourself to in that capacity, you're going to also alienate yourself from a lot of relationships that are potentially very healthy relationships in your life because you're so adamant about everybody else trying to progress and, and grow themselves the way that you are. When in reality, it's really, it's, it's not, uh, it's not that normal. So finding the, the, finding that happy medium, that idea of like Socrates talks about like the golden mean, right? So like arrogance, uh, you know, lack of confidence, and then in the middle being humble and, 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 uh, you know, confident in yourself, but not, not overconfident and arrogant, like be in the middle. How do you find that? You have to bump into those, those walls in order to understand what that feels like or what that looks like. And uh, I know for, for myself, I've had a hard time turning on the off switch uh, after I start going down that route. But that's also probably because I'm, I'm, I'm not normal and I have obsessive tendencies over things. I just happen to have directed those towards healthy things and not like self, you know, you know, abusive things, right. Or, or whatever. And, and, uh, 
but turning that off is tough, man. And I know for us, like we've delved in a lot of Ryan holiday stuff. We like, you know, we, we have, you're like this. I'm like this. Jared is like this. So we kind of push each other. Uh, but, uh, yeah, tapering that I'm sure, I'm sure Amy sort of helps put you, you know, back in, in, I guess, reality, like Ashley does with me. Oh, 100%, right? That's kind of why I have a, a sauna is because I cannot bring my phone in there and I've got to just do nothing. It's been huge for me. It's like, a, yeah. you know, I talked about this in uh, the um, Instagram. I don't know where I got it from. It might've been from my holiday, like this idea. It is, it's from that stillness is the key book, like shutdown rituals. Like I have to have a shutdown ritual to know that like, all right, work is over. Now it's time to um, move on. Uh, to play or to leisure time, right, right? Whatever that may be. Yeah, but shutting down your mind as part of that. This is where you know. This is where it, it's. I think it's really challenging for people as they get into the business world. Is they they start to make progress and they have all these ideas and they want to get all these things to occur and they're ambitious as hell and they want to see change occur and they want to do it as fast as they can. So sleep gets, you know, put to the back burner. You know, they're always working their mind. They wake up thinking about the thing that they went to bed thinking about. Like when we really take a step back and we, and we, we, we have to straddle the line of contentment and ambition. Um, that's very, very challenging. And I know for me, you know, like you said, shut down rituals. I have to, like, I, I limit myself to the amount of time that I'm on uh, my phone every day. I limit um, social media exposure. Cause I know I go, ape shit on that. And I, and I can't, because when you get your kids telling you, you know, you're on your phone too much or daddy, you're on Instagram too much. Why don't you come do this? Like, that's not living, you know, that's not a good thing. And, uh, and sometimes you need that to, to get put back in the right place, but, uh, turning it off. It's some people need to turn it on. Other people need to need to turn it off, but it's just a matter of finding that balance. And I don't think you can learn that from a book, right? Like you have to learn, you can learn plenty of things from a book, but you have to apply it and you have to, you know, get hurt and, and bump into things and, and, uh, learn lessons the hard way typically. Cause I, I don't know anybody that's read a book and been like, my life has changed. Like I've got it. Now everything is different. It's not how it works, but no, I, I, I love this stuff, man. And the stoicism approach that I think we've all dove into over the last few years. Uh, I, I know barely enough to sound smart when I talk about this stuff, but, uh, I think that is just like such an interesting approach to life, you know, in terms of, uh, constant self-improvement, emotional control, managing yourself, like, not necessarily putting that on anybody else, but it's all about you and becoming a better person kind of every single day. Uh, and that resonated a lot with me as I kind of dove into it over the last few years. Oh, 100%, right? It just seems to be all about perspective, right? Like just the ability to kind of disconnect and like get perspective on the situation, which is, which is just very difficult to do, especially kind of in our world where we're just kind of being flooded with, with stimuli 24-7 and you could just constantly be busy from when you wake up until you go to sleep every single day working on, a million things, right? Like it just forever. And so um, it just, yeah, it's just a logical systematic approach with all that stoicism stuff that just, man, is it, has it been uh, helpful? Like uh, yeah. unbelievable, right? And so, yeah, I mean, continuously, like I've definitely gotten into trouble, right? Like you kind of alluded to the fact, like, all right, I'm into four businesses at this point. Like, you know, it, it can be a curse, right? Like, oh man, like cash practice, Let's do some coaching. Let's get a physical product. Hey, let's go ahead and start an online fitness business all at the same time, right? So, um, so far so good in, in managing and delegating. Luckily, I've just have really, really smart and amazing people around me that makes that um, stuff possible. But you know, I'm I've been told I'm not allowed to start another business. So sorry. But there's so much opportunity out there, like all the time. I'm like, this could be such a good idea. So um, I hear you. I, I, it's exciting. It totally is. It's super exciting. That's why people, I get it. I get so frustrated. They're just like, there's just, there's just like no opportunity. I'm like, open your eyes. What are you talking about? Like anywhere there's a problem, there's a solution to that. And if you can come up with that, you have a business right there, you know? So that's all it really needs to be. You know, speaking of that stuff and we'll kind of, we'll kind of end on this in terms of what you're doing. Go ahead and just like throw everything out of uh, what you're working on, where people can find out a little bit more about all of your, uh, your, your ventures and, and uh, you know, where they can, they can uh, touch base with you if they want to get involved in anything. Sure. Oh, absolutely. I think to also to like circle back with everything, yeah. the, the fact that there's opportunity everywhere, that was the other piece that my dad always told me. Again, in Switzerland, socialistic country, it's very hard. Like, there's not a lot of opportunity. And I just, I'm mind blown on how easy you know, and it's all about perspective. I get it's not easy, right? But like how easy it is to start a catch practice, like in all things considered, like you don't, it's no overhead. 
it's, it's very minimal like risk because you can go get a job anytime you wanted to. Like I just mind blowing why, why people don't do it. Like hard to get off the ground, but pretty easy just to like initially start, right? Like we live in a place where uh, at least for right now, opportunity, like you said, is everywhere and starting something is, is, is pretty damn easy. Right. And so, yeah. So made to move physical therapy. Uh, that's the number two is our, um, uh, cash performance-based practice, right? And I've got amazing people that are on my team. Dane, Hannah, who we just hired as a new grad, Nate and Matt, uh, they're just absolutely killing it. And then Mesa, who runs her own practice, but is, is uh, kind of the, la the last licensee. Uh, she's doing amazing stuff well. I've got some really cool stuff. Her, she's in the box PT. So that's the kind of brick and mortar stuff. Uh, if you have any questions about that, like Instagram, uh, we have some hilarious videos. My team is doing some crazy stuff. They do, they do. I saw some of them. I was like, that's very creative. Oh man, we got more stuff coming out. That's going to be, uh, you know, probably push some people the wrong way, but like, you know, uh, I, I think it's, it's just, it's fun, right? Like, um, it, it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting for sure. So that's, uh, the, um, the brick and mortar stuff. Um, we also do online fitness training, uh, specifically for LEO and first responders, um, police officers. So if you go check out effective.fitness, that's the website there. Um, also a big Instagram uh, presence um, there. We have about <clears throat> close to 800 members um, in that uh, program. Um, the, the, if you ever want some really good uh, physical training, like um, programming, uh, definitely check it out. Like uh, I do a lot of programming, it, it, it's, it's awesome. Um, and then we have a, a physical product, right? So like um, everybody probably has those loop bands or has heard of those loop bands. We do monster locks with them. We do stuff like that. And so I just saw um, an opportunity because those bands broke all the time. They're really uncomfortable. So I created my own band. Um, if you go to um, perfectband.org, you can check that out um, and uh, order some bands if, if you'd like. They're on Amazon as well. They're just much more comfortable. I'm not gonna say they don't break, but I'll just tell you right now that I pulled my two, my two kids on a sled with our weakest band, the orange one, and it did not break. So um, we're gonna hopefully get some testing down the road. So, um, you know, we, we sell that physical product um, as well. So um, yeah, and then obviously PT Biz coaching, which is uh, you know, my heart, my passion, probably what, what I spend most of the time on right now, which is the impact that we've been able to have uh, on that platform has been uh, unbelievable. I'm just super pumped that we can, we can have such a positive effect on, you know, our profession that we love so much. And, and hopefully other people too. Now we're kind of reaching some other people with some of these sales and marketing skills and realize that a lot of other people in the health uh, professional world, right, uh, need these skill sets too. What's the people, man? I mean, that's the thing, you know, the, the people we get a chance to interact with, the people that we get a chance to coach and that we get to help them kind of break through some of these mental and skill set barriers that they have, like it's so, it's so personally rewarding. It's awesome. And the other thing that's cool about it is the impact that that has had directly on their ability to hire clinicians that don't have to take these high volume, you know, high, uh, high volume in-network positions that just burn them out. And all of a sudden, like we just brought a, a PT on uh, this week and, you know, our, our week is only 33 available hours uh, per, and he, and he was like, is this, is this a typo or something? Like he didn't realize like that that's it. That's all, that's the max we want you to see in a, in a week. That's 33 in a week max. Right. And then, you know, he gets an hour for lunch every day and two hours of staff training time. And that bumps us up to basically where our 40 hour, I guess, threshold would be. But he was just shocked. He's just like, I can't believe that. Like, this is why I would see this in a day sometimes, you know, and, and, but that's, that's okay. That's like the way it should be. Like, we don't want to burn people out. So like somebody going into that, the only way that we can help more people go into uh, locations like this that have, you know, an opportunity for them to work with people they really enjoy for them to make good money and for them to have a profession they can do for a long time and not get burned out is to set it up on our own terms. And that requires you to understand how to start, run and grow a business the right way, which you don't learn in PT school, you know? So for us, we've sort of taken on the, I guess the burden of that within the, the, the profession, uh, just because like, you know, it, no one else was really doing it at the time. And there's just plenty of people you can learn from uh, now, but 
this is something that we really, really enjoy. And anytime we get a chance to work with somebody, it's just fascinating to learn their backstory and learn what drives them. And, and I mean, they're so, they're so diverse. It's, it's, it's super cool. So, you know, if you guys are interested in, uh, you know, jumping on a call with, uh, with one of our team members, you know, talking to myself, Eve, or any other team members that we have about your business, getting some really cl- uh, clear kind of next action steps. I think for most people, that, that's just the problem. They don't know what they should do. Um, but clarity is uh, kind of hard to come by and having a non-biased uh, person that's looking at it from a 30,000 foot view is where we tend to get kind of the beginning uh, steps established of what you should do. Um, head to physicaltherapybiz.com forward slash call. Um, there's a little application process to get a better idea of what kind of business you have. You don't even have one yet. We'll know that as well. Um, and then you can jump on a call with one of our team members in, and uh, for an hour, we'll spend time digging into your business, to get really clear on what that looks like. So um, Eve, dude, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Guys, I hope that... Uh, you know, you get a lot from this. Eve's a wealth of knowledge and it's cool to dig into his, uh, his background. Any, any parting shots, man, anything you want to leave people with? Oh no, man, this was, this was great. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you can check me out too on Instagram at PT biz, which is, it's pretty easy handle. Um, I definitely, I'm almost done with my 305 days. It didn't take me a year. It took me almost two years, but um, I got like 10, uh, 10 left and, uh, I'll, I'll keep posting, maybe not as much, but I'll keep posting on there and just, you know, trying to give people little nuggets, uh, to help them along the way. Yeah. All right. That's it, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Hey, wait a minute. Just to let you guys know, we are closing in on 200 views on iTunes. That's crazy. Most podcasts hardly get to 100 views, let alone 200. And this is such a niche-specific PT business podcast. That's wild. So let's try to rally the troops and get to 200 reviews for this podcast. The first thing you need to do is you got to sub- subscribe to this sucker, whether it's on iTunes or any other platform that you're listening to on, so you know when new episodes are coming out. The next thing, make sure that you leave a review. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I read all of them. It means a lot to me. Next thing, guys, take a screenshot of whatever episode you're listening to and put it in your stories on Instagram and tag me in it. That's at Danny Matei PT. If you do this, I will repost it. So you'll get a bump. I'll get a bump. We'll share this information with a lot more people because that's the goal, guys. We want to get this information in front of a lot more people. So take a screenshot, share it on Instagram stories, tag me in it, and I will repost it. So here we go. Let's try to get to 200 reviews for the podcast. Thanks for listening.